Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference. The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series, so we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. It was only a few years ago that I became aware of the term regenerative agriculture, and now it's everywhere. We definitely wanted to include something on regenerative ag in the conference, and we settled on what you're about to hear. A conversation with Elizabeth Whitlow, Executive Director of the Regenerative Organic Association, which oversees the Regenerative Organic Certified program. This new standard requires organic certification as a prerequisite, then adds additional requirements related to soil and land management, animal welfare, and social justice. Is this beyond organic development the way the industry is headed? Elizabeth shares her perspective. Hello, everybody. This is Elizabeth Whitlow, and I am the executive director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance. And I'm joining you all from the coastal hills of Northern California today. Elizabeth Whitlow, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. Happy to be here. So I've invited you on to talk about the Regenerative Organic Certification Standard that the Regenerative Organic Alliance oversees. And I thought where we could start is with a little bit of history, Elizabeth. I'm, 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 I'm talking generally, but uh, say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, everyone was just talking about organic agriculture as you know, the sustainable solution. But the conversation since then has shifted a little bit. And I thought you could just start talking about how that conversation shifted and how that ultimately led to regenerative agriculture as a concept. And then beyond that, as a, as a standard that we're going to talk about today. Sure. Okay. There's a few questions embedded in there. And let's see if I can um, kind of tease those apart a bit um, and trying to address those for you, Jordan. And, and I'm really Glad to be here speaking to your audience today. And I know you've got a lot of amazing organic growers and pioneers of this sector up there in your region and attending your conference. And, um, you know, I would say I worked in organics um, for nearly 17 years um, here in Northern California and all over the United States. Worked with amazing organic farmers all over the place during a period of our the biggest growth in this industry. And that was right after the National Organic Program went into effect in 2001. 
And, um, you know, we saw tremendous growth and interest in organics and promise, the promise of organic agriculture to address many of the pressing problems that we were seeing um, in our agricultural practices. And so, you know, many of those problems included things around industrialized farms and um, the runoff of pesticides and making farm workers sick and all of the, the different reasons why farmers start to grow organically were, um, you know, were being addressed and met by this organic sector and the growth in that sector and consumers really responded to it. And I think, you know, we saw 15% growth every year for decades, really. And so, you know, I, I don't think that that enthusiasm or support for organic farming has waned. However, I do think there were some ways, at least in the United States, where we started to see um, some areas that uh, were weakening that rule, that federal rule on organics. And um, that was specifically in like 2017 when the NOSB recommended, the National Organic Standards Board recommended that the federal law allow hydroponic or soilless systems um, for organic. And so there were many of the original founders of this movement who deeply believed that organic starts with the soil. And the core principle there is that you improve the soil in which you are farming. And, and so, you know, that that's one of the central areas where we started to see the weakening here of organic was around the allowance of hydroponics and soilless systems. And on top of that, we've really been struggling with uh, the scaling of, of livestock farming so that you see essentially um, more industrial style factory farm of livestock. And um, when you get into having like 10,000 dairy cows, 100,000 laying hens in, um, you know, being kept in confined situations or with minimal access to, to the outdoors and to express natural behaviors, you start to have some other problems that um, are the same as the ones we were trying to fix. So um, I think that's a pretty long answer to that question, and I probably didn't an- address all your questions. Maybe we should pause here and um, make yeah, sure no, I no, absolutely. I, I think yeah. that I think that was a good summary. I mean, you 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 focused on the introduction of hydroponics, but that's just an example. I think across the board of different ways in which. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about the word compromise and how you can, you know, along the way, um, compromises have been made about what what certain practices to allow in the standard. And you can use that sense of the word compromise in a positive way. We made compromises, although there are those in the movement who feel that these standards, organic standards, have been compromised in a more negative sense. And and I guess that's what you're you're mm-hmm. touching on. Um, just a, 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 a good, healthy segment of the community that is unhappy with the evolution of organic standards as it has taken on mainstream mainstream acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as it's scaled and as it's like become, you know, they're they're after, you know, when, when you're going after these like the scale and efficiencies, but in that, what what are you losing, and and what is it doing to the smaller farmers um, or the more diversified farms? And so, you know, I, I definitely have heard a lot from kind of berry farmers and tomato farmers who were really having, you know, their 
feet kicked out from under them with the price of berries coming down because we were bringing in hydroponic organic berries from from you know importing those into this country and they were produced in a way that allows stores to sell them for three dollars so when you're driving down prices like that it, it really puts a different kind of hurt on this whole industry and causes everybody to have to look for shortcuts it's the same thing that's happened in dairy in eggs you know the dairy farmers i've worked with a lot of dairy farmers and up here in northern california and all the way up the coast up into oregon they have, um you know coastal hills lots of pasture lots of access to pasture um these folks had really beautiful dairies and doing great work but what they found is like you know back in the days when when organic was just beginning in dairy they were making really good they were making a really good return and way, you know, above the cost of production so that they could continue to sustain maybe third generation farms. And now those prices are all being pushed down, down, down. And many dairy farmers I used to know and I worked with during the transition, they're all selling their farms and it's heartbreaking to see that. Um, so, you know, I think those, those are some areas that I would point to as showing where organic was not, serving as the solution that it once was. All right, Elizabeth. So when we look back on the evolution of this conversation about dis dissatisfaction with the evolution of the standards, it seems to me, and this is just my observation, for a while there, the phrase we kept hearing from people in, in that conversation was beyond organic. Like we need to go beyond organic because organic isn't good enough anymore. It's been too compromised, whatever. And then over the last few years, the word regenerative went from like a word many of us had never really thought about or heard before to like just like in in the regular mainstream conversation um so is that is that somewhat of a fair observation about that kind of uh crystallizing of the conversation that's kind of part a to the question and part b i would just love for you to to to, to, to start us out for the rest with with uh, a, a definition of the word regenerative oh gosh okay well I, I will say first off that um, you, you make a really great point that, you know, and we used to see people using beyond organic a lot as they were moving towards, say, biodynamic. And they would want to, like, as there was increasing dissatisfaction with um, organic as an encompassing term that they started to say beyond organic. And um, I, I thought it's it just been fascinating to see how regenerative as a concept has captured the imagination and the sense of possibilities and how much people have adopted this term. Let me back up here real quick and to say the founders of the Regenerative Organic Alliance are uh, the Rodeo Institute, Patagonia Company, and Dr. Bronner. And the Rodeo Institute, of course, um, your, your audience is probably quite familiar with. I mean, they're really um, responsible for bringing organic farming and spreading it far and wide here in the U.S. And and really across the world. And um, it was founded by J.I. Rodale, but his son, Robert Rodale, um, is the one who really did, used that term for the first time. And he used it in response to a journalist asking him about something being sustainable. And his response was basically like, why would you want to just sustain something? You want to grow, you want to regenerate it. And so really, if we look at that as the concept, um, I think that that kind of strikes to the core of what we're looking at here. And, in how it's applied to agriculture. The founders of the Regenerative Organic Alliance also saw 
this kind of potential for this concept to become a real buzzword and to also get watered down and weakened so that just like sustainable or natural as a term has gotten watered down to be kind of meaningless now, they don't want to see that happen to regenerative. And that is why they attached it to organic. Those two concepts we see are intrinsically linked. You cannot be regenerative if you're not organic was the thinking here that although there are many regenerative practices being incorporated and I applaud all of the efforts going on across the, the world and across certainly across the Midwest, there's been a real revolution in the regenerative agriculture movement where they're doing, they're incorporating more um, no-till methods and, um, you know, diversifying their crops, trying to keep cover on the soil um, for more periods of the year than, than not. Um, However, we don't see regenerative um, when when it includes like these concepts as presented by, say, Monsanto, who wants to, you know, minimize the Roundup used on that Roundup ready corn or soy. Um, we still don't see that the use of chemicals or these kinds of pesticides that are persistent and and causing all kinds of um, problems to human health and the health of our ecosystems and all living beings that we we don't see that as a regenerative uh, so that's hence the regenerative organic right so is it uh you've you've kind of provided you've brought us to a nice segue into talking about the regenerative organic certification that your organization oversees but but just by way of summary um is it fair then for this lay person talking to you to kind of attempt to define re regenerative practices as those that um, that ultimately build the fertility, say, of of our farming systems, or let's let's use a more general term like health that that actually not just sustain but build the health of our farming systems, which harkens back to the original aspirations of the organic philosophy, small o organic that. Yep. It, it has been widely um, contentious recently because big O organic, certified organic agriculture, you know, you can make an argument that those original aspirations have been compromised. Hence, hence this now, this focus on, on bringing, getting, getting those aspirations back into focus with, with regenerative agriculture. Yes. No, I, I would agree with that completely. I think um, you, you hit on it perfectly. And, and, um, this whole concept around like improving the, the health of the soil that is built into the core definition of organic, according to the national organic program. However, when you see it implemented out there where there's, you know, there's, there's constant tillage going on. So by not having really clear provisions or restrictions around tillage, for example, we are allowing our soil to be destroyed and being destroyed at unprecedented rates. In fact, like in it, there's 30 soccer fields that have been lost to soil erosion just every minute that we are speaking. So when you think about that as a concept, um, you, you think about how much damage you can do to the soil with tillage. And it's, it's just as damaging as the use of chemicals, honestly, because you are destroying the soil microbiome and um, that is essential to to creating healthy soil so you know we have more living beings in one teaspoon of soil than we do humans on the planet 
which is is quite an astonishing thing to to consider. And so if you if you think about all the life in the soil, and and, and in fact we only know we've identified maybe fifteen to twenty percent of those soil microbial all all of the diversity in the soil, and we're just learning what it does and how it relates, how it how those microbes deliver nutrients to the plant roots, for example. And so um, we have it's a very emergent field, emergent science. We have a lot to learn about it, and and so you know really trying to approach the health of the soil, I think, is key to uh, to our program at the Regenerative Organic Alliance. And and you know just looking at what we do to the soil, we do to ourselves. And so how how do we how do we reverse this? How do we really try to address um, building healthy soil and and with regenerative practices and minimizing your soil disturbance and and taking away the use of chemicals, um, you can attain miracles. <laughs> Truly, you would get like one percent organic matter. Every one percent organic matter that is increased in the soil will retain twenty seven thousand more gallons of water per acre. It's um, I think the the statistics and the science behind it are pretty staggering. All right. And well, so it's exciting. It's really exciting to be working in this field and and considering um, you know how we can improve the soil and and looking at soil as the bedrock of our food system and our culture and our civilization and not degrading the soil. It threatens our way of life, threatens the productivity of our cropland and the health of the foods we eat. All right. Well, I think I think I think that's this has been a good preamble to to, to talking about the standard that you oversee, Elizabeth. So, um, we're we're going to spend much of the rest of the conversation talking about the regenerative organic certification standard, and built right into that title is the word organic. And so, I'll start us off by saying that your standard is based on. Uh, the prerequisite that you have organic certification. In the U.S., we're talking about NOP, organic certification, presumably um, the equivalent up here with uh, CORE in Canada. So maybe you could take it from there. Um, can you talk about what, what, what is the standard and how, how, does, how is it structured? Yes, I would love to talk about that. And so it's regenerative organic certified, and, or the ROC, as we affectionately call it, and um, rock is indeed built on USDA organic or international equivalent. And so it's the baseline. Any, um, anyone who's applying for rock needs to have that as the baseline. And, and we do, you know, I, I think the NOP is, is a, it's an excellent, reputable and important designation. It's hard earned. I know many amazing organic farmers who work very hard to earn that seal. And I'm grateful for all the efforts that have, um, you know, from, from many stakeholders over the last 40 years to grow the organic market into what it is today. We do not intend to replace organic. We want to set a new standard for what's possible. And we want to strengthen organic. In fact, it's like a stake in the ground to keep organic strong. And, and so, you know, if we, our criteria are based on soil health, as I, I went off a little bit geek, soil geeky out on you, but um, our, we have three central pillars, and that's soil health and land management. There's animal welfare, and then there's social fairness. And truly, the organic standards were really never intended to, that I'm aware of, and certainly don't come anywhere close to looking at the social equity, looking at fairness to farmers, fairness to farm workers. So this is a really, um, it's a critical component, and we have certainly learned that 
over this last year, um, you know, here we are in this post-COVID reality where we see the the most vulnerable, um, those essential workers, the food service workers, farm workers, having to go to work every day. And where, you know, certainly in the regions where I live and in California, the outbreaks among the Hispanic communities are they're they're stunning. There's um, you know the rates of COVID infection are much higher because they can't stay home from work. And it's this is across the whole country. It's why we saw so many of our um, the meat processing plants have to shut down. Those people were forced to go to work because they don't get paid enough. They don't earn a living wage. So this is something that we're trying to address with our framework with these three different pillars. We require, we recognize 14 different certifications. We are trying not to add additional burden to the farmers. I'm keenly aware of the fact that farmers are the ones who, who um, have to carry the, the cost here of, of showing all their records to show what they're doing to be good actors. And, um, and so it takes time and resources. And so we want to, we recognize these other certifications and uh, that way we can eliminate any duplication of effort. We, um, we have a whole process by which we, um, we have an equivalency analysis, essentially our gap analysis that compares each of our 14 recognized standards to the ROC framework. And that's available at our website at regenorganic.org. And so all of those criteria listed are measured up against these different certifications that we recognize and then those questions are removed so when the audit happens or the inspection inspector comes out they're only asking the questions that were not addressed by right right those other so, certifications. so if i can if i can interrupt and just kind of try and summarize yes. to make sure i understand the regenerative organic certified standard requires organic certification and then has a bunch of additional requirements in order to meet the standard you've divided those requirements into three pillars land and soil management, animal welfare, and uh, social social justice or social considerations. However, you recognize mm-hmm. a bunch of other standards. I think you said 14, um, that if, if a farmer has any of those standards, if any of those standards cause them to meet the requirements you have in the, in the ROC standard, that's good enough. Uh, so that theoretically, a farmer could apply for the ROC standard and when an auditor comes to check them out theoretically they could have a few different certifications and by virtue of having them in the right combination they may i'm simplifying but they meet they may by they may meet all of the requirements of of the regenerative organic certified standard which kind of reduces bureaucracy and overlap is what i'm what i'm taking from that Yes, I, I wish I could say there were some standards that would meet all of our criteria, but I would say the founders of the of the Rock uh, have you know set forth a very very aspirational um, path to, and and criteria, and so there's there are additional considerations even if you have the most high bar certifications across the board. Um, I would give you, I could give you an example, but I, I probably shouldn't dive into those details. But you know, there are several certifications I'm thinking of in each pillar that would eliminate probably, you know, fifteen of the twenty. Well, let's criteria. let's just let's just quickly let's. I can. I think I can come up with an example, really mm. simple one, right? 
Uh, so, you know, I have a colleague in British Columbia here who is uh, organic, certified organic, and also animal yeah. welfare approved. And so, um, yeah. you are. I, I'm. Al it's almost certain that you're going to have requirements in the ROC standard that go beyond what is required in the organic standard, but that the animal welfare approved standard meets. And if so, that when the auditor comes and sees that, oh, this guy has animal welfare approved. Um, you know that auditor knows right away that they've they've ticked off this 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 and this requirement in the in the animal welfare pillar uh, of of the ROC yeah. standard. Like, is that is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yep, that's exactly it. Um, and we have we have the uh, the kind of abbreviated version of the equivalency analysis that is actually it's just about ready to publish on our website. We had to do a, a little some adjustments on it, but it's. It'll be coming up very soon, but animal welfare approved is a great example as far as the animal welfare standards that we recognize. We recognize three currently, and that's the highest bar. And so with the AWA standard, there are there only remain a, a handful of questions um, for the animal welfare pillar of, of the for, ROC. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. And Demeter or biodynamic is, in, is you know, in the soil health or Naturland is another one very common in Europe. I don't know if, if you see it much up there in Canada, but or Natureland. So, uh, if you have either of those certifications, it eliminates a lot of our criteria as well, because those are both very high bar programs that both Demeter and Naturland. And so that that addresses a lot of our criteria as well. Okay. So. Uh, Elizabeth, I, I hope not to dwell on this next point because time is moving quickly, but I do want to mention that the All right, so it's time for another visit to the CUABC conference trade show. And for this episode, I'm going to be talking to Larry Seymour, the general manager of BCS America about BCS tractors. Hey, Larry. Hey, Jordan. How are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. Maybe we better start with the basics, Larry. What is a BCS tractor? So BCS manufactures two-wheel tractors. I was awestruck when I first discovered BCS in 1975 as an alternative to my Troy Bill Tiller because as soon as I saw it, I realized I was looking at an all-gear-driven machine that had reversible handlebars, that had a power takeoff shaft that could handle both rear mount soil working equipment as well as front mount sickle bars and snow blowers and a range of other implements. So in a nutshell, that is what BCS is. And it's a technology that's alive and well in Europe and has been in the U.S. and Canada now for a little over 45 years. Now, Jordan, I'd love to hear what your experience with it is. Oh, sure. Um first attachments that I bought were uh, a tiller and what's called a rotary plow. And a year or two later, I invested in a flail mower for the machine and also uh, what's called a power harrow. Excellent. Um, I might mention that these are the same four attachments that JM Fortier uses um, on his market garden. And then, you know, along with you and the other market gardeners, our appeal also extends to folks like me who are more on the self-sufficiency end. And for us, though, because of the size of the farm, we also found that four-wheel tractors are just limited in their applications. For example, mowing underneath dormant or semi-dwarf fruit trees, 
uh, mowing steep pond banks, mowing underneath electric fences. For all of those kinds of applications, I use one of BCS's walk-behind sickle bar mowers. Um, so, you know, it's just been glorious because it fills all of the gaps that the four-wheel tractor doesn't. And among those is, you know, is included snow removal because in the wintertime, there are just a lot of areas where a large tractor and blade uh, aren't appropriate so that the snow thrower attachment, which like all attachments on the BCS are all gear driven, um, is able to get me out of whatever nature sends my way. Yeah, I think I think regarding um, the use of a BCS as a secondary machine, you know, on a large acreage, uh, it, it, you know, it's 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 finesse as a machine can't be understated. Its ability to get into tight spaces and also turn so tightly with the braking system, you can literally turn it on a dime. And with a mower, when you're in a tight space, that is uh, super super valuable. Um, in terms of purchasing a BCS, um, there are a couple of different routes you can travel. One is if you visit bcsamerica.com, you'll see that there is a shopping cart option. Um, but understand that if you order uh, a machine from us via our website, that we don't believe in selling things in boxes. So what we're going to do is utilize one of the more than two dozen BCS dealers in British Columbia to set up and service the equipment for you. And finally, um, the bigger issue, I think, is if you're looking for some tailorized advice about what to do, what power units to get for what set of attachments, for Pete's sake, at the bottom of each page on our website is an 800 number. We're more than happy to talk to you and give you the benefit of our advice. Well, okay. So whether you want to browse the attachments or the machines or actually make a purchase, then you can head to bcsamerica.com. Larry Seymour, General Manager of BCS America, thank you so much. This has been uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Jordan. Elizabeth, I, I hope not to dwell on this next point because time is moving quickly, but I do want to mention that the one, the, an aspect of, of the ROC standard is that you can move through to the standard in phases. So in organic certification, we have transition time, right? With the ROC, yeah, you have, yeah. you have um, different levels of, of kind of certification, bronze, silver, and gold. Um, and to, to jump from bronze to silver, from silver to gold, you, you need to meet you need to meet even, you know, higher, higher expectations or requirements. Um, and then there are different, um, benefits that come from reaching those higher levels. So I wanted to mention it, uh, you know, if you want to clarify anything, that's great. Otherwise we'll, we'll probably proceed on. I would just say, um, you know, you, you, you hit it right on. That's that's, um, how they set this up. And I see bronze as a real on-ramp and, and what we learned in our pilot project is that we needed more of an on-ramp for certain sectors dairy in particular and some of the other livestock operations that we or livestock type operations so that we you know the bronze you could equate to transitional although it does require organic as the baseline but um that's exactly it this is really building in the concept of continuous improvement um directly into the standard and i don't expect to see a lot of people arriving at gold it's really high bar <laughs> elizabeth 
we we don't we don't have the time to uh, to get in detail about about the requirements uh, in the standard. But I would I would I would love it just to give people a sense of what's in there. And I mean, I would really encourage them to go to your website and check out the standard because it is very well laid out. But I thought maybe you could give an one example from the gold level of each pillar of 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 a of, of a requirement that that is challenging for for uh, applicants to reach. So one from social justice, one from land management, and one from animal welfare, just to give people a sense of, of what's in this standard. Yep, that would be really easy. Um, okay, so let's, let's take, as, as I talked a little bit uh, too long about the uh, soil health and the minimizing soil disturbance, that section of our soil health pillar. Um, so originally when the framework came out, they were looking at no-till and as like the the high bar, the gold bar, and realize like that is, you know, farmers do need some tillage. It's a tool that is important to be able to use. Um, and and so, you know, looking at the amount of tillage, like originally they had no till as the gold level, and now we've changed that in our framework to be minimize soil disturbance. And the gold level remains no till, whereas bronze and silver it's required that you minimize soil disturbance as much as possible and that you're documenting all your tillage events and, and that you have an action plan to show how you intend to reduce the intensity of your tillage over time. And, and then there's certain restrictions around when that soil disturbance can occur. So that would be one example. Um, if you want to look at the animal welfare, um, this one is, you know, there, there are a lot of challenges in that I would say mostly what I would focus on is where they source their feed. So recognizing, you know, feed for monogastrics versus feed for ruminants. And I'll just give the example of feed for ruminants. And so at the bronze level, it's looking for 50% grass fed operation. And then the remainder of the feed comes from organic sources and um, 75% grass fed at the silver level and 100% grass-fed at the gold level. And then um, to move on quickly to the so social pillar, we would I would point your folks to the section on living wage, which is shockingly hard to attain, so hard to attain that it is the gold bar. And so, you know, it just says where we are um, as a society, as an industry, um, is that, you know, living wage is really hard to attain. And we have a financial system that is based on, you know, paying this minimum wage. People need a living wage. They don't need a minimum wage. That is really hard to get out of a cycle of poverty if you're living at minimum wage. So for bronze level, we require that bronze and silver. It's that they, they, the operation demonstrates a commitment to pay a living wage and an intent to pro progress towards a living wage and that the operator must do this by assessing the wage gaps against the targeted living wage in their region. And we have different calculators you can use to determine what the living wage is for your particular region. And that they communicate transparent, transparently with their workers about why a living wage can't be paid. And um, at the gold level, so that's silver and bronze, at the gold level, operations have to demonstrate that they are paying a living wage to their workers without exception. That was a great summary, Elizabeth. Thank you. I think that I, that gives people a sense of what's in there, and there's so much more that that they can uh, 
that they can they can go and look at. And I also want to add because you you referenced it, one one cool thing I like about the bronze, silver, and gold concept is that in some cases the way it's worded is to get to silver you have to you have to have any three of these five um requirements and it gives you a little bit of flexibility as a producer to say well okay that one's really hard for me but these three i can do um which exactly yeah, yeah. i i i really i really like that okay so could <laughs> you could you could you um can you talk about how like I want to spend a few minutes now talking about auditing and the general costs of attempting to add the certification um, to to your farm. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me mm -hmm. how auditing works and and talk a little bit about what kind of annual costs this uh, this this typically adds to a farm's bottom line? Yes. Um, okay. So first off, the auditing we only work with certifiers who already do NOP audits. So that way we can bundle the audits in the future that those those certifying agents, they'll send their inspector out to do the annual organic audit and then they'll just tack this on as an, an additional. So it's not having, you don't have to arrange for an, another day of auditing or with a different agency or something like that. So that's to facilitate this whole process. Um, the auditors, basically we work with a database that I'd say probably 75% of the NOP accredited certifiers in the U.S. already work with. And so it helps to facilitate the um, the process where we've got everything online and um, just trying to make it really seamless for the auditors. And we're also develop working with them and we're going to be launching this mobile app so they can even do it on a smartphone or a tablet. Um, so basically the auditors will go out. If they do it as a bundled audit, they'll just add on those additional questions and um, and then the certifier will review it and make a recommendation to the ROA, and then the ROA would issue the certificate. We uh, have a cost and fee structure document on our website, uh, really aiming to a, a fee structure program that will subsidize farmers basically at the cost of the brands. So brands will pay 0.2%, and farms will pay 0.1% of their gross regenerative organic crop value. And so, you know, we aimed to have this be really low. So like the minimum fee is $225 a year. That's if you have $200,000 of sales. And then um, it just goes up from there, obviously. So 300,000 is going to be $300 a year. So we kept our fees as low as we could. Um, we, you know, the certifiers will need to also get their, you know, have to bill for the inspection time and for their reviewer time. And so um, we are not dictating to the certifiers what they charge. Um, you know, trying to keep our the cost of our whole program and the approval process and everything really competitive so that certifiers don't feel the need to charge a lot of extra money for doing these audits. Um, and we are actually just started fundraising yesterday for our cost share program. And we're going to mimic this after the USDA's cost share program, where we're going to build a fund that will pay um, farms at a certain level, uh, pay up to 75% of the certification costs that they accrue with the certifier. Elizabeth, I'd like to finish our conversation just covering a few different questions that are basically all related to barriers to uptake or disagreement about, among, uh, you know, about this standard or, or crit criticism or that, that sort of stuff. So maybe, maybe I'll just start with um, like a, like a regular barrier that, that most certifications face, which is, in order to motivate people to want to take this on, aside from their own personal motivations to just like 
aspire to be a better farmer, say. Um, it's a lot of work. It's clearly a lot of work to, to achieve. Um, how, where is, where is consumer consciousness of this standard at right now? And where does it need to be, um, to really motivate farmers and to ultimately give them a payoff in the marketplace for, for being able to, to proudly display like the ROC logo on their products. Right. Well, um, so first off, like we, I have a really small team, uh, started with me and then I was able to hire someone last year and now we're up to five people. So we're growing and we're growing because of, um, you know, the incredible interest that we've gotten. I mean, I could have had a full-time job my first year just responding to inquiries, but we also had to develop our standard and develop a pilot program and do a lot of other things. So I don't think I did a, a, a great job of it, but I, you know, with a, a bigger team, we're going to get much better at um, educating consumers and developing that whole aspect of it. We haven't, um, we haven't put as much resources into that as we did into developing the certification program. But in this, now that we've kind of come out the other side of that, and we've got this great program, we've got this rigorous criteria, lots of stakeholder input, and really good systems. And, and so now the certification is going to start to roll off on, roll on its own. And we're going to be able to really put some more energy and resources into um, broadening the, um, you know, the reach. And we're, we're going to be doing some campaigns, in fact, coming up really soon with some retailers here in North America on this. And I have had tremendous interest from, from different retailers. And also, I, you know, we didn't talk at all about the textile industry, but it's, stunning how much interest we've had from the textile sector cotton wool leather uh, linen or flax hemp all of these like the, the textile industry is really moving to address their um the climate kind of con contributing to climate change and climate and carbon emissions and so we've gotten a ton of interest from that sector alone but i would just say overall like why a consumer would want to support rock um, is because it, it truly represents the highest standards for organic agriculture in the world with the stringent requirements for soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness. And it just allows individuals to connect with a full suite of, of important values that they bring to the market with them every time they go shopping. So, you know, by, by purchasing a rock product, they are helping to preserve the environment and natural resources and enhancing carbon sequestration and, and, you know, embracing this concept of fair treatment of, of animals and workers and all living beings. So this is really what sets us apart from other certifications. We are like this one umbrella and everything um, that might speak to their values um, included in that. Elizabeth, we, we started out our conversation talking about the evolution of the organic standard and how, as it became more widely accepted, uh, there were compromises made that a lot of people in the movement are unhappy with. And just touching on the same topic of consumer consciousness and brand awareness, do you see any risk to the ROC standard being watered down over time for similar reasons? That that in order to, to get really penetrate the market and become mainstream, you need lots and lots of farmers using it and and then as it takes on steam, lots of farmers want to belong and somehow, you know, just, just, is there an, an, an inevitable watering down that, that is going to happen 
and in 20 years there'll be a new standard attempting to reclaim some of the uh the rigor uh that that your that this standard holds now uh, I, I can't see that happening not with the founders and uh their commitment patagonia and bronner's have led the way um as these brands who always are aiming for that high bar and they have been incredibly dedicated to the rigor. I've never found my place in a life of where I'm saying, hey, y'all, let's like, we, we need to lower the bar a little bit. Like, we need to make this possible. But that's where I was um, when I first came aboard. And uh, they don't really respond to that too much. We've kept the standard pretty high. Although I would say, like, they, there's definitely have been some compromises. And in this case, in a very good way. Um, not a compromise that is weakening it in a way that loses integrity, but rather to provide that on-ramp for that bronze-level certification. Um, there was a recent Washington Post article about us that um, was was just a great headline to wake up to. It was, the Rock, certi- the Rock program could become the gold standard for wineries and the earth. And, and I truly believe it's going to stay just as high bar as it is. I can't predict the future, of course, so I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. Uh, you know, they say we only have 60 harvests left if we continue farming the way we are, where agriculture is the problem, but it can be the solution. So if we can start to incorporate all these practices so that this becomes the norm, then uh, who knows where we'll be in, in 20 years. Um, I'm, I'm also curious. Really couldn't, yeah. I'm, I'm also curious to know if during the crafting of the these uh, regulations, these, this standard, was there any... Was there much disagreement about the social component? Like, I think the social component is really important, um, and I'm I'm really glad to see it in there. But it's it, it it's a whole other like set of requirements to meet in a standard that if you just take the animal welfare and the land management is already really hard. And I'm just wondering if internally was there was there much debate about about making it even harder with this this pillar. Um, that to me is the set of considerations that most farms, you know, a lot of farms struggle with. It's, it's, it's really hard to, on top of all the effort to, to farm ecologically, um, to make sure that, that, that everyone's being taken care of in a fair and just way. Was there, was there much disagreement during the crafting? There was a lot of uh, dialogue for sure. I don't know if it was disagreement really. I think everybody, um, all of the founders and all the stakeholders who came together were uh, deeply invested in that. We had um, a lot of input from the founders of the Ag Justice Project, and and that's a very, very high bar certification that is around North America. That I, you know, I, I think it was really cha- it's very challenging for farmers to to meet that criteria. We we do recognize that program. Um, but we had to make it something that was attainable. And I think recognizing the struggle that farmers uh, deal with every day as far as getting um, a solid labor force uh, here in America, I'd say, I think the last statistic I saw was that 60% of our agricultural workers are undocumented immigrants. And so, um, you know, we've had a really difficult time in this country for for them in particular. And I, I hope that will be changing now with the new administration. But um, bottom line is that, you know, farm work is really hard. It's very challenging to find a solid labor force and to keep, you know, and to pay them well with the kind of shrinking margins that farmers 
are, are dealing with. And that's partly back to the whole thing we started off in the beginning was about the downward pressure on prices. We need to keep advocating for policies that value good, healthy, clean food produced by these kinds of in, under these kinds of methods instead of policies that reward the planting of um, Roundup Ready GMO crops that really are just lining the pockets of agrochemical industries and, and lobbyists. And so, you know, I, I see a lot of promise in our future of, um, you know, developing some some ag policies that reward farmers for the ecosystem benefits that they're providing in their communities, rewarding them for, you know, the, the carbon banking or carbon sequestration by building healthy soil. They they may be able to find other ways to generate some some farm income. And then on top of that, just valuing quality food. And, and there's, there's, again, another emergent field of science is around the bionutrient availability of food grown in healthy soil. And we spend so much on healthcare here in industrialized nations where we have epidemic rates of obesity and heart disease and diabetes. And all the cost that goes into addressing that could be addressed by growing healthy food for people instead of potato chips and, um, you know, insulin. So I think that there's, there's a long way to go in rewarding um, farmers for the great benefits that they provide to society. And, and so looking at ways to capture that is going to be really important work for us in the future. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, in giving us examples from the standard that at the gold level, um, livestock farmers Livestock, like I, I mean, I'm thinking about ruminants, uh, have have to be 100% grass fed. Uh, and you also mentioned in the land management pillar that at the gold standard, tilling uh, is not 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 allowed. And I'm wondering, I don't know how exactly how to frame the question, but I'm I'm wondering if it basically precludes a lot, like a ton of otherwise sustainable annual plant agriculture. So market gardeners, I'm thinking of, or Grain growers, um, are you seeing are you seeing many of in those categories reach the gold standard so far? Because it seems like super hard. I, I guess what I'm trying to tease out is whether there's an intentional bias against uh, annual crop agriculture. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that that's a great question, and I hadn't thought of it like that before, and I don't think there's an intentional bias against annual crops, but I, I am kind of in love with Wes Jackson and um, all the work he's been doing at the Land Institute for, for gosh, I don't know, 40-something years of trying to perennialize wheat and um, looking towards perennials as a better solution for our grains. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't personally have a bias against annual crops, and I don't think any of the founders do, but it's a really interesting question, Jordan, so thanks for that. Um, and I would just say, you know, as far as that super high bar approach where a gold, if you see a, a gold rock label on a livestock item, that it's got to come from, a, it, there's, there's not going to be a lot of those out there on the market. I'm, I'm sure you're right on that, that finding a grass-fed, 100% grass-fed operation um, that meets all the criteria of the livestock of the livestock pillar as well as um, the soil health one is, you know, I can see some specific bison operations on in the Great Plains 
for example. Um, you know, that, that seems like it would really resonate with, with, um, that framework. And we, we did pilot this out with a fascinating program. Here's the Audubon Conservation Ranching Program, and they're working on um, restoring native grasslands um, all around the Midwest and up in the Dakotas and um, having a lot of success with their program. And they're, they're a really good fit for the ROC framework. And so I hope that we'll be continuing to partner with them and, and grow this movement with all the work they're doing, which is millions of acres of ranch land and um, and grasslands, precious grasslands that are being lost and converted to um, agriculture in a way where it's being tilled up and then planted with um, annuals and um, losing precious habitats for and wiping out native bird species. Um, so those are the kinds of projects I'm really looking forward to for us to show show how this framework can work in the real world and and be and the model can be expanded. All right. Well, we're going to we're going to end on a real easy one, Elizabeth. Uh, you touched on it really briefly earlier, but this is a standard that has been uh, developed in the U.S., focused on the U.S. But currently, are there Canadian farms uh, that can apply? It sounds like possibly if they are uh, certified with an organization like ProCert, which I should add is a competing accreditor uh, against the organization in British Columbia uh, that that is that is hosting this conference, which is neither here nor there, but but kind of a funny uh, little tidbit to add. But can a Canadian farm yeah. are, can a Canadian farm currently try and, and receive the certification, or is it not quite there yet? No, we have um, we have uh, gosh, almost a dozen um, interested um, potential applicants in the Northeast, where EcoCert is another certifier who works in Canada. And they are offering the certification as well. We are working with, uh, currently with three certifiers who were approved to our, through our pilot, but we're about to open up for applications for other certifiers around the world. And so, yes, I expect to see us have a growing presence up there in Canada, I hope. So, yeah, I see nothing but growth in our future and bringing on more certifiers who can do this work with us is a really exciting part of our, our future evolution. Okay, so so yeah. in, in British Columbia, there are numerous certifying bodies, um, most of which fall under the umbrella of the accreditation body. The accreditation body is what's hosting this conference. They're called the Certified Organic Associations of British Columbia. And then they, they accredit about, uh, what is it, six or seven or eight certification bodies. Any of those certification bodies, I, I, it sounds like, could could reach out to you if they wanted to explore being able to um, offer uh, this to their member farms. Hundred percent. Yep, we're um, very busy getting our certifier application forms ready to go and and dialing in our certifier requirements, and that document's available on our website under our resources page. It's basically what all uh, most any accredited CB knows is that uh, following the ISO 17065 um, framework. So that's um, the International Standards Organization and um, on conformity assessment. So we are, um, everything that we're requiring is not, it's nothing new to any accredited CB, I would say. And um, should give confidence to people that we've got a lot of rigor built into our program and um, intend to keep this a very high bar program um, with a lot of credibility. All right. Well, uh, if if listeners want to to learn more, to go check out the standard, 
they can Google the Regenerative Organic Alliance or they can head directly to regenorganic.org. Elizabeth Whitlow, I just, I just found that all fascinating and I'm so grateful you made the time to join me uh, for this, this podcast episode and I thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Jordan. I'm really glad I got to join you as well. And I would be remiss not to shout out to our good friends up at Nature's Path at the Legend Organic Farm that was also in our pilot and Dag Falk, who many of you probably know, and Stuart. They um, they were part of our task forces. They gave us a lot of input on the standard and they're big supporters. And, and we are equally big supporters of them. And, uh, you know, many greetings to all of you up in Canada. I would just say you're lucky that um, our election went the way it did otherwise i was looking at how am i gonna how am i gonna move to british columbia so anyway that's one less person you have to worry about coming your way <laughs> so thanks for having me jordan and um i hope you all have a great rest of your conference dag dag incidentally was our keynote speaker at last year's conference uh which was which was focused a lot on regen it was really cool so yeah that's great elizabeth thanks so much that's that's awesome yeah, i'm a big fan of of mr Fox, no doubt all right, that's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckel, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher Aubin Banwell. You can search for Matt's music online. Eckel is spelled E-A-K-L-E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes. Thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon.